The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you're not allowed to criticize. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host. Today is Thursday, so it's time for the weekly visit of our friend Dr. Peter Hammond. So let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I am with you, yes. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. And the uh, presentation Peter has for us today is entitled The Real Story of How Nations Rise and Fall. So where would you like to start us off today, Peter? Well, there's, of course, been lots of excitement all over the world over Britain having its first Hindu prime minister, uh, Rishi Sunak. And uh, some Indians have said this is really um, uh, poetic justice, to quote uh, Weon and India Today, that Britain ruled India and now an Indian rules Britain. Um, And uh, however, I've got a a very good friend, Vishal Mandalwadi, who's a fine Indian uh, who's converted to Christ, and he's a great philosopher and um, has written many books, uh, like uh, the book that made the world and so on, on on the Bible. And um, uh, he has pointed out that this is not a good thing. Um, So uh, interesting having a Indian Christian pointing out that we should not get very excited about this because Rishi Sunak uh, is a Hindu, and he is unashamed of worshipping cows, and he's got pictures of himself uh, uh, observing Diwali. And how interesting uh, that it was on Diwali Day that a Hindu was appointed Prime Minister of Britain, without a single person having voted for him, mind you, uh, due to interesting way of how things work. Not the voters, nor even members of his party actually voted on him on this because of the interesting um, game of... uh, musical chairs they've been playing but that that's not the point the thing is in the scripture in Deuteronomy 28 where the blessings and curses on nation are listed one of the curses or judgments on a disobedient nation is the alien who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you and you shall come down lower and lower he shall lend to you but you shall not lend to him he shall be the tail and you shall he shall be the head and you shall be the tail Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commands and his statutes, which he commanded upon you. And they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder on your descendants, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. 
therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you. And um, he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring nations against you from afar, and it, they will eat the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land until you are destroyed. They shall not leave you grain or new wine or oil or the increase of your cattle or the offspring of your flock until they have destroyed you. And it continues, this is all because you refuse to obey the voice of the Lord your God. There's much in Deuteronomy 28. The first 14 verses are the blessings that come upon a nation that obeys God. And we just need to remember the, the context here, uh, because when an African prince came to Queen Victoria in the 19th century, when Britain was at its apex of power, ruling over about a quarter of the world's land surface and population, the prince asked Queen Victoria, what is the secret of Britain's greatness? And Queen Victoria handed him a Bible and said, this is the secret of Britain's greatness. And I think that's absolutely correct and true. It is the Bible that made England a great and powerful nation and a force for good in many ways, such as bringing it into the slave trade and sending missionaries all over the world. There was many great things are done. And uh, yet right now, on Diwali Day, which is the Hindu festival of light, a Hindu has become prime minister of England and Great Britain. And you, of course, also have a Muslim mayor of the capital city of London. Um, that's disturbing. Now, my uh, friend Vishal Mandelwadi posted this and said, Britain's first Hindu prime minister, Rishi Sunak, who, by the way, is one of the richest people in Britain and one of the richest people in the world, too, has stirred up Indians' imaginations. Could a Hindu become president of a post-Christian USA? And the... Uh, he goes through some of Sunak's interests and uh, his uh, background and how, you know, his wife's even richer than he is. But then Vishal points out that many Hindus are excited about Sunak because he is unashamedly a Hindu. He's been pictured worshipping cows and uh, very happy about that and, and putting the Diwali lamp outside number 11 uh, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. Well, Oxford taught him Western philosophy and science have failed to find the truth. Post-truth universities have come to the same conclusion as traditional Hinduism and Buddhism and Greek Gnosticism. By itself, without divine revelation, the human mind cannot know the truth. And that means faith has to rest on one story or another. A faith or worldview is nothing but a story. Therefore, educated Hindus, such as Sunak, feel there's no reason to discard myths and idols that one's tradition has venerated. And so Rishi Sunak has earned an honor which um, could have been one, he said, by uh, Nehru 75 years ago. All that Gandhi and Nehru needed to do was to remain part of the British Empire, demand full citizenship, representation, and voting rights for Indians. And if India had remained within the British Empire, the sun would not have set on it. India would have turned Great Britain into Greater Britain. In a free and fair worldwide or empire-wide election, India's first prime minister, Pundit Nehru, could have easily beaten Winston Churchill for 1951 the UK had only 40 million people and India had over 340 million. So why did Indian leaders demand nationhood, given that nation was never an Indian idea? India had tribes and castes and kingdoms, Raj, Raja, but never a nation. Alexander the Great brought the idea of empire into the subcontinent of India, but imperialism means wars. One king attempts to take over another's territory. Brahmanism sanctified such wars of territorial expansion through the religious ritual of horse sacrifice and the religious military ritual of Hindu kings fighting each other to extend their territories divided India. 
a religious ritual intended to empower one Hindu king at the expense of others so weakened the subcontinent, it became an easy target for invaders and colonizers, including the Muslims, the Portuguese, the French, and finally the English. And so South Asia's tragic history motivated the leaders of modern India to reject the Hindu idea of kingdoms or rajas, as well as the alien idea of imperialism in favor of the Christian, biblical, Protestant idea of nation. And that brought peace to India. And in Genesis 11, the Bible taught that God destroyed Babel, the imperial city, the totalitarian centralized city, in order to create nations understood as people groups, governing themselves in their own territories and their own language groups. So ethno-linguistic people groups flowed out of the Bible and out of Genesis. And in Genesis 12, God called Abraham to walk with him, not in the way of his forefathers, but to learn to become a great nation through obeying God. And God blesses nations who obey his laws. And just as we are, and for me to interject here, I'm adding some of my words to what Vishal has been put, putting there, but remember the Hebrews were always Hebrews. Even after 400 years in Egypt, they didn't become Egyptians. They were still considered a separate nation. And so in the Bible, God considers nations in terms of ethno-linguistic people groups. In fact, that is what our Lord uses in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. Our Lord Jesus says, make disciples of every nation. And the word he used for nation in the Greek is ethne, from where we get our word ethnic from, as an ethno-linguistic people groups. And so when the Lord says, make disciples of every nation, he's not telling us to make disciples of every country or state which is recognized by the United Nations, who are neither United nor nations. <laughs> uh, in fact, they're just basically biggest collection of unelected mass murderers, dictators, human traffickers, and drug dealers on earth. I mean, they're just gangsters with flags, really. The United Nations is a misnomer, not United, not nations, but I digress. Uh, the, the point is, a biblical nation is an ethno-linguistic people group. And so, uh, interesting that as Vishal Mandelgwani points out, that in India, uh, it was through the missionaries and through the Bible and through the English coming to them that they learned the ancient idea of the rajas of the kingdoms and of the imperialism, uh, such as the Islamic empires and the British empires that conquered them, and they learned from the Bible the concept of nations. And so that is why 562 kingdoms of, of India were able to assimilate and work into a a new country that could work together because of, even though they weren't all Christians, but they're following a biblical Christian uh, principle. Now, he points out that the Pundit Nehru, that was the first prime minister of independent India, was a product of Christian education, a fine English gentleman as Rishi Sunak, except he had a more of a Christian education rather than Rishi Sunak has had a post-Christian education from these English schools. The builders of modern India who championed Christian education for India included Charles Grant and William Carey and missionaries like Alexander Duff and others, uh, Macaulay and uh, outstanding Christians. Nehru and Sunak are products of the vision that Lord Macaulay presented to British Parliament in July 1833. The Parliament accepted Macaulay's argument to prepare India for freedom through Christian education. And so Vishal Mandelgwani, this Indian um, philosopher says, it may be that the public mind of India may expand under our educational and political system till it has outgrown its system that by good government we may educate our subjects into a capacity for better government, having been educated in European 
Christian knowledge they may in a future age demand European institutions. Whether such a day will ever come, we do not know, but never will we attempt to avert or retard this development. When it comes, it'll be the proudest day in English history. So this is all quoting from uh, Lord Macaulay, who was governor of India at the time. He says, uh, to find a great people sunk in the lowest depths of slavery and superstition and degradation, to have them so ruled as to make them desirous and capable of all the privileges of civilized citizens would be indeed a title to glory all our own. The scepter will pass from us, from England. Unforeseen accidents may derange our most profound schemes of policy. Victory may be inconstant to our arms, but there are triumphs which will follow, which will not be reversed. And this is an empire exempt from all natural cause of decay. These triumphs are the actual triumphs of reason over barbarism. Empire is the imperishable empire of the arts and the morals, our literature and our laws, primarily of the Bible. And so it was Christian missionary education, not Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, Sikh, or secular education, that gave India leaders such as Gandhi Nehru and Ambedkar. So Vishal Mandelwani says that modern India is as free and prosperous and productive as it is primarily because of Christian missionary education, because of biblical worldview and principles, not because of Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, the Sikh, or the secular education, because it was it was Christian education that gave it freedom and prosperity, but post-Christian education has rejected truth and rejected character and has messed up Britain's public life and will mess up India's too if they follow that uh, trajectory. An education that cannot teach that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is the primary cause of independent India's moral degeneration. British universities are excellent, therefore Britain has no shortage of political thinkers and writers, yet her politics and her economics has become murky because British universities have now made themselves incapable of teaching truth. Teaching the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life and the beginning of knowledge. Britain's murky, confused government has happened as a result of their universities rejecting the biblical standards of right and wrong. And um, Mr. Sunak has become prime minister not with a Christian worldview, but rather with a secular humanist worldview and with a Hindu religious background. And so some of his party members of Parliament may trust his abilities. Others may be happy for him to become the sacrificial lamb to blame for the economic woes, which are the results of their um, policies. These politicians expect him to fail. They hope this may give them the opportunity to lead the Conservative Party. And so um, Vishal says, I pray that Mr. Sunak will surprise his critics and succeed in making Great Britain greater. But it's sad that his politically correct professors did not teach him the philosophical and economic harm that worshipping cows has done to India. Nehru would have been better informed. A culture that worships nature, including cows, makes itself incapable of establishing dominion over nature. Paganism, that is myth-making and nature worship, was the reason why a tiny but truth-seeking and virtue-cultivating nation, Great Britain, was able to rule over a vast sub subcontinent sunk in darkness, superstitions, and social evils like widow burning and sacrificing infants uh, to the mother Ganges and burning uh, lepers alive to ensure a better reincarnation. And so it's so important at this moment, Vishal Mandelwani, an Indian Christian, says uh, to stop and ask, how is it possible that Great Britain could have elected someone who does not have a Christian biblical worldview. And uh, he put some of the blame 
on the British universities like Oxford, which have moved away from Christianity and the seeking of truth, as university means, uni veritas, one truth. Today, most of our universities don't even believe in truth, let alone one truth, let alone that can be known. And many are speaking about a post-truth and a post-Christian era. And sadly, this is what Rishi Sutnik has received. He's received a post-Christian education, a secular humanist education, which is not incompatible with his Hindu polytheism and paganism and idolatry and nature worship and cow worship, which uh, does not speak well for the future. And so, again, when you look at what the scripture is telling us, the, the, the key principles, God controls the destinies of nations and individuals. Our problems are not primarily political. Our problems are primarily spiritual. We have created and aggravated our own problems through our disobedience to God's law. It's human greed and lust and selfishness that underlines the corruption and the immorality and the rampant crime in society. It's man's desire to be independent of God, free of moral restraint, liberated from ethical considerations. That has led to the breakdown of moral standards, the breakup of modern families, the sellout of entire countries to communism and terrorism. Our problem is sin, S-I-N, and the middle head of sin is I, and the middle head of pride is I. In the middle of lie is I. In the middle of Lucifer's I. Sin is our problem. And at its heart, it's selfishness. The I in the middle of the, of the word sin. Uh, selfishness is at the core of it. We spend more time reading the newspapers and surfing the internet than reading the Bible. We spend more time listening to communists than listening to God. We spend more time watching TV than worshipping Christ. We are playing more often than praying. We worry more about what people think of us than what God thinks of us. We're more concerned about what the LGBTQ, CRT, BLM crowd think about us than what God thinks. We labor hard to appease world opinion, much harder than to please God, evidently. Those who trust in man-made solutions, politics, military might, uh, multiculturalism, so on, uh, to solve their problems, they will suffer the consequences of human failure. Worldly wisdom and national strength mixed with human pride, are no match for obedience to the principles of God's word and faith in the power of Almighty God and humble trust in our sovereign creator. The Bible teaches us, Jeremiah 18, 7 to 10, that if any nation turns away from God and God, if they will turn away from God, God will uproot, break down and destroy that nation. But if they turn away from evil, God will bless and strengthen and build up that nation. Deuteronomy 28 teaches us that if a nation is faithful in obeying the clear commands of the Lord, God will bless their fields and their crops and their children and their homes, and he will send rain at the right times and great victory in battle. And, in fact, we can see times in history when this was plainly done. But it also warns from verse 15 on, but if you do evil, if you reject the Lord, he will bring on you disaster, confusion, and trouble in everything you do. The Lord will strike you with infectious diseases with swelling and fever, with droughts and scorching winds, disasters, dust storms and sandstorms, floods, the Lord will give your enemies victory over you, and an alien will rule over you and will rise up above you, and your children will be given to marry the alien. Your sons and daughters will be given to another people. A nation whom you've not known shall eat the fruit of your land and your produce of your labor, and they shall oppress you and you will be crushed continually. And these are told again and again, the amount of warnings in Scripture, Le Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, 
um, Jeremiah 18. It, these principles are clear. And so it is, it is not so much that we break God's laws. We break ourselves upon God's laws. It's, it's like gravity. It's not just a good idea. It's, it's a law. Uh, you will break yourself if you think you can jump off uh, buildings and cliffs and mountains and your Superman suit that you bought at the toy store is going to enable you to fly or whatever. The scripture declares that law, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yet how often do we not fear man and reject God's law? We cannot blame God for our failures, which have been caused by our own unethical opportunism. We must not be surprised when our wisdom is shown up to be sheer stupidity when our strength is exposed as weakness, when God judges our arrogance with disgrace or our treachery with betrayal by others. Because if we betray our friends, <laughs> who's going to stand up for us when we face betrayal? We do not so much break God's laws as are broken by them. Just like every manufactured item needs to be operated in accordance with the guidelines laid down in a manufacturer's handbook or instructions. We should not be surprised if things go wrong when we ignore the Creator's instructions as spelled out in the Bible, the Creator's handbook. This is true for nations. This is true for families. This is true for individuals. The best guidelines for life, morals, ethics, and standards are found in the law of God, as summarized in the Ten Commandments in particular. Do not steal another man's life. Do not steal another man's wife. Do not steal another man's property. Do not steal his good name by gossip and slander and libel. Do not be jealous and envious of your neighbor. Do not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Uh, do to others what you want to be done unto yourself. I mean, these would be the foundations for any civilized nation. And when these rules have been observed, nations have been blessed. And of course, the most important commands and ten commands are the first tablet of the law. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, worship God alone. Don't bow before idols. Don't... Uh, Take God's name in vain. Don't speak disrespectfully of God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, when this was done, Britain became the greatest economic, political, military, and spiritual power in the planet. And uh, when it says turned away from God, well, it has gone down. You could say the same for America and any other country too. Uh, we may be judged, we are judged as individuals in eternity, but we are judged as nations on earth. And so, Recent history is littered with Western defeats and crises, and it's not so much that communism or Islamic jihad triumphed in these countries. It's more that Western democracies failed by cowardice and compromise and by disobedience to God. And you can see that countries that fall to communism do not tend to fall by military means, no, but by demoralization, by deceit, by propaganda, by degeneration from inside, cultural Marxism. These nations fell not to external military invasion, but by internal subversion. They were not defeated. They were talked and tricked and threatened into compromise or surrender and accommodation. And before you knew it, some kind of multicultural Tower of Babel had taken over and people found that they couldn't get the medical care, but some foreign invaders who turned up just yesterday crossing the channel can have more access to uh, free medical care than you can, who paid taxes for decades and might have fought in wars representing a country. And so, yes, the alien is rising above and, and, and the, the uh, inhabitant is going below. And so it is a fact that we in the West have been winning our battles but losing the wars. You know, really consider the French in Algeria, the Americans in Vietnam, they won their battles, but they lost the war. It's our failure to fight on the spiritual front that caused us to lose wars. 
the military aspect is only part of the total strategy of warfare today. But when we allow corruption and atrocities and immorality and blasphemy in our ranks, we sabotage the war effort. We invite judgment from Almighty God. When we make our plans and then arrogantly try to use God to bless our plans, which are in obedience to his clear commands, instead of humbly studying God's word and obediently submitting to the revealed will of God in the Bible and faithfully carrying out God's plans, his commands in the scriptures, when we fail to submit to God, we're doomed to defeat. Unless we turn to God and carry out his will, we're doomed to winning battles but losing the war. If our land becomes totalitarian, if it becomes under communism or the Great Reset, which is just another way of, of achieving uh, the communist totalitarian system, and if anyone doubts it, just think how not that long ago the state could tell you what to wear on your face, how to muzzle your face, and how to inhibit your ability to even breathe free, fresh oxygen and limit your movements and uh, imprison you, close down your churches, your societies, your clubs, uh, prevent outreaches and evangelism, prevent cathedrals from celebrating Easter. Think how people were kept from their jobs, kept from the workplace, bankrupted and destroyed, all because of a COVID cult or branch COVIDians, you could say. Um, and yet this is all part of the World Economic Forum globalist agenda to tell you who can work, when you can work, what work you can do, how you can do it, where you can travel and show me your papers. And this is straight out of the Soviet Union's playbook. And yet, well, we shouldn't be surprised that when the Wuhan Health Organization decided to copy the Chinese Communist Party's model for how to deal with an infectious disease, which was man-made in a laboratory, mind you, but nevertheless, um, that's Marxism. When the state tells you who can work, where they can work, when they can work, what you've got to wear and show me your papers for internal travel, well, that is actually what the Soviet Union was. And uh, even my country, South Africa, we we had parliament suspended for two years and we were ruled by a committee of six. Well, in fact, that's what Soviet means, committee. So the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics was the union of committee-run Soviet Repub uh, Socialist Republics. And that was what the French Revolution was. The French Revolution substituted the monarchy and uh, the the uh, uh, parliament that they had uh, with the, the Estates General, replaced it with a committee, the Committee of Public Safety, Committee of Six, run by Robespierre, Maximilian Robespierre. And the Committee for Public Safety determined who would get guillotined that day and so on. And uh, yes, that's what KGB stands for. KGB uh, in Russian actually stood for Department of Homeland Security. That's what I've been told by Russians. I said uh, the correct translation of the Russian words that made up the acrostic KGB was Department of Homeland Security. They always have some innocuous, nice-sounding name, uh, but you don't particularly feel protected when the Department of Public Safety determines that you've got to be guillotined that day. And so uh, you can see that what has happened is we are being judged for playing the fool with God and trying to use and abuse God and ignoring God. But if God saves us from the consequences of our stupidity and disobedience, then it'll only be an answer to the humble prayers and repentance of his people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked ways, then when I hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now, you can just think of uh, how the... Uh, West seemed to win in South Korea, but they lost in Vietnam. What's the difference between South Korea and South Vietnam? Well, the American and other allied armed forces in Korea had a high percentage of Christians and a God-fearing, Bible-believing commander, 
General Douglas MacArthur. And South Korea had millions of Christians who daily gathered for prayer. Christian prayer meetings have been held with millions of people present at one time and place in South Korea. The gospel influence in South Korea gave the people a spiritual guts and stamina and backbone to withstand decades of communist subversion terrorism. But by way of contrast, there was minimal Christian influence in the American armed forces in Vietnam. The chaplain service were badly attended. Drug abuse, corruption, black marketeering, prostitution, crime, alcohol abuse turned Saigon into an immoral sewer, basically one big brothel. South Vietnam lacked the moral, ethical, spiritual foundations to withstand the onslaught of communism. It was a case of corrupt and conquer. Morals do matter. The spiritual life of a country is crucial. Our relationship to God makes all the difference, not just lip service or religious ritual, but a personal relationship with God as our Father. A Christian is someone who's experienced the forgiveness that comes from Christ's sacrifice on the cross of Calvary, from the blood of Christ alone. A true believer is one who's been changed, regenerated, born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. That kind of Christianity is unbeatable. And so if people are confused as to how Britain has ended up with a Hindu prime minister who far more seriously uh, is a Goldman Sachs employee. He was a financial advisor for the Goldman Sachs bankers, or should I say banksters. Uh, and here you're dealing with someone who's plainly a globalist, a New World Order, uh, World Economic Forum person who is not that positive towards Brexit, but wants uh, to have a closer relationship with the EU as the EU has testified that they're very happy uh, with uh, Rishi Sunak coming in uh, because they're convinced that he will do what they want as far as um, EU policy in Britain. And when the banksters and the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab are thrilled about this, we should be concerned. You have a Muslim as the mayor of London. You have a Hindu uh, globalist, um, someone who used to work for the Goldman Sachs banks, bankers and who supports a lot of the Great Reset, uh, who, by the way, uh, was very much um, part of the whole lockdown lunacy in uh, 2020 to 2022 uh, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, so when you consider those things, this is reason to be concerned. So this should chase us back to Deuteronomy 28 to look at the blessings of obedience, the curses of disobedience. And then in Deuteronomy 30, we receive this, today I'm giving you a choice between good and evil, between life and death. If you obey the commands of the Lord your God, if you love him, obey him, keep all his laws, then you will prosper. You'll become a great nation. But if you disobey God and you refuse to listen, you will be destroyed. I warn you here and now, choose life so that you and your children may live. Love the Lord your God, obey him, be faithful to him. Then you and your descendants will live long in the land. That's Deuteronomy 30, verse 15 to 20. Well worth reading Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 30. And so God's word to his people all over the world, Great Britain, United States of America, any part in Europe, anywhere around the world, uh, Australia, New Zealand, wherever there are Christians, if my people are called by my name. And so if you are someone who identifies as a Christian, whether by tradition or by personal conviction, if my people are called by my name, those who call themselves Christians, believers, there are four things we require to do and there are three things God promises to do. It's 2 Chronicles 7.14. 2 Chronicles, 2 times 7 equals 14. Now, there's two parts to it, and there's seven points. Seven points, four things we've got to do, three things God promises to do. So 2 Chronicles 7.14. What are the four things we must do? We need to humble ourselves and pray. We need to seek God's face and turn from our wicked ways. 
And then what does God promise to do? He promises to hear us from heaven, to forgive our sins and to heal our land. So the question is, do we want our land healed? Can we see what's wrong <laughs> economically, politically, in terms of crime, what's going on in the schools? I mean, almost anything you can look at, it looks pretty bad. Yes, we can we can organize a brilliant uh, state funeral for the queen. I mean, that, that was very well done. Uh, but what about daily running of the country? We seem to be better at ritual and ceremony than it comes to basic economics and law and order and crime punishment and protecting the borders. I mean, what would Alfred the Great, the king who started the Royal Navy, say about uh, assisting invaders, foreigners, uh, many of whom have criminal records and paedophiles and potential rapists and so on, uh, helping them come into the country, uh, circumventing the official legal process of uh, immigrating or um, visiting the country and then putting them up in hotels and castles while there are military veterans living on the street and not able to get their medical care. I mean, what would any of the great leaders of Britain the past, from Margaret Thatcher uh, through to uh, William the Conqueror, uh, say about this? And you can be pretty sure Queen Victoria would not be amused. At any rate, um, the point is, if we want God to heal our land, we need God to hear our prayers, and he refuses to hear our prayers or forgive our sins, until we humble ourselves, pray, seek his face, turn from wicked ways, and then he will hear, forgive, and heal. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. I was just getting my uh, mixer up uh, unsuccessfully, but we are back now. Um, I was looking for um, bits and pieces as... as, uh, I was listening to your presentation and making notes for our show post. I was trying to find something that would come up with uh, KGB and Department of Homeland Security. Well, what's come up here, you may be familiar with this. This is from the American Free Press, edition of April the 21st, 2003, so almost 20 years ago now. Get ready for the Sovietization of America. And this is by a guy called Al Martin. Uh, Some people wonder what a country that holds personal liberties above all other rights is doing hiring the former head of the KGB to consult on the issue of homeland security. You will be happy to learn that the former head of the KGB, the secret police of the former Soviet Union, General Yevgeny Primakov, has been hired as a consultant by the Department of Homeland Security. Do you think he will share his expertise in security to prepare US citizens for domestic internal passports under the pretense of fighting the never-ending war on terrorism? So I thought that was interesting. What are your thoughts on that, Peter? <laughs> well, yes, um, as we were talking about the the origin of the real uh, Great Reset, being uh, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, who actually successfully transitioned from the failed experiment of the Soviets in Russia to infiltrate in the West, and how so many of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, moved over to the West after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, and they moved into the Green Agenda, they moved into the Presidiaments in San Francisco, uh, the Green Cross, uh, the Rio um, Earth Summit uh, in um, uh, 1992, and uh, uh, 
writing the new Ten Commandments for and Sermon on the Mount for the West, which Mikhail Gorbachev was the author of, uh, which was then promoted as the Earth Charter and became uh, the whole um, Agenda 21 and, uh, uh, and now Agenda 23 as well. All of these were the Soviets. The Soviets and the communists basically moved uh, on the other si side. They moved over to the West and they started to work from within. And Gorbachev became super popular in the West. Interesting, next to nobody turned out for Gorbachev's funeral in Moscow. Not even the Russian president uh, thought it important enough to attend Mikhail Gorbachev's funeral. <laughs> I mean, isn't that incredible? No head of state at Mikhail Gorbachev's uh, funeral in Russia, and only a few hundred people came to see um, uh, his coffin uh, before, you know, compared to something like a quarter of a million uh, queued for hours to uh, walk past uh, Queen Elizabeth II's uh, coffin, and millions lined uh, the uh, uh, the mall in the area where the procession of Queen, Queen Elizabeth's uh, a, a coffin uh, after the funeral, and yet uh, Russia, no interest. But the excitement of the Western media and Western governments for Mikhail Gorbachev is huge. Just no excitement behind the Iron Curtain. I mean, nobody in Eastern Europe or Russia or Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia or Ukraine were celebrating Mikhail Gorbachev's death uh, or his life uh, at the point of his death. But um, you just see, uh, as we pointed out, there's this tremendous move of communism from the East to the West. And now we've found the communists are with us. And uh, when I first went behind the Iron Curtain in the 1980s, and I reported back to people in Britain and America and Germany about how it took so long to go through Checkpoint Charlie and the Iron Curtain and how they, they wanted us to take our shoes off and what? And search through our pockets. No. Uh, and uh, rifled through our bags and Oh, that could never happen here. That's absolutely ghastly. You know, these communist countries, you know, at least I know I'm free. You know, we're in the land of the free and the brave. That would never happen here. Well, <laughs> some years later, we were uh, standing in this long, 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 long queue waiting to go through the ridiculous security in America. And I happened to have a government shutdown, which unfortunately didn't mean that there were no TSA agents. It means that they were just going slow. And, uh, so we all got to know one another in the hours we spent in the queue while we waited for the flights that are connecting flights to be missed because we were delayed because Obama had ordered a, a government shutdown. And so one of the persons said, have you ever seen anything like this in all your life? And I said, yes, Checkpoint Charlie, East Berlin, 1980s. Lots of laughter. Well, along came a TSA agent, walked over to me, and uh, he pointed to a sign on a which was on a metal stand, and the sign stated, it is a federal offense to make a joke about the TSA in the performance of their duties. So as he walked away, I said, gee, it's illegal to make a joke now. And he turned around and said, I'm warning you, sir! And everyone just looked with amazement, like, wow, you know, what provoked that? And uh, again, um, uh, as, as he walked away, I said, actually, to be fair, the Security, uh, sorry, the Stasi <laughs> security party were the Romanians. The, the Stasi in East Berlin were much uh, more efficient and more polite. And uh, I mean, that's the point. Here we are in the West. We were aghast. There was a time when missionaries would come back from the Pacific Islands and say, you know, these people walk around mostly naked and they put tattoos in their bodies and the people, how ghastly. And uh, you spoke about uh, some of the hideous things like child sacrifice. What? How can it be so uh, primitive and so barbaric? Oh, but 
we don't mind our people wandering around naked and having gay pride celebrations and uh, perversion being shown to kids and even teaching perversion in children's schools. No, well, that, that's, that's got to be accepted. Or uh, mutilating children literally without their parents' permission, many cases, le legislation that you can castrate uh, boys and have mastectomies on girls because they want to have gender-affirming care and that this has got to be covered by government funding. And there's, I mean, how bizarre. We have become a tattooed, a desecrated people who walk around naked just like the savages we used to look down on. And, uh, you know, goodness me, you know, they practice polygamy over there. They've got many wives. Well, and now we have people who have multiple serial divorces and uh, affairs, and they can even be great heroes. I mean, I mean, how many times did Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor get married and divorced? It kind of makes your head spin sometimes. I mean, how many times was Elizabeth Taylor married? Who can keep count? And so it and there's a lot to have broken those uh, uh, since. And then we, we had um, Schroeder, the um, Chancellor of Germany, and he was called the Audi president. Why called the Audi president? Because he had four rings. He had already... He had had four wives, you know, he, and apparently uh, his cabinet was an average of three divorces and uh, one of them even had had five. So uh, here we we used to look down on people who couldn't keep the marriages together and who couldn't uh, respect one man, one woman for life. And we're into polygamy and polytheism and body scarification and body mutilation. And, and now we're doing it in the West. And you can carry on and on with these different things. It's absolutely bizarre. And now it's harder to travel through airports in the West with more intrusive searches than the communist security and Stasi did crossing the Iron Curtain back in 1970s and 80s. So, yes, uh, what has happened is plainly, and now we're not even talking about the COVID cult, masquerade, madness, salvation by vaccination. You have to be jabbed and all of the rest of it to be able to travel and work and so on and even attend a church service in some places. And this has now become what they consider normal. And if you question any of this, you're a right-wing extremist, conspiracy theorist, um, anti-Semitic, Islamophobic, uh, bigoted, narrow-minded hater, and they carry on throwing all kinds of insults at you. So plainly, we're not even allowed to um, have free speech. So what George Orwell warned about in 1984 has come about. We have thought police punishing thought crimes. And also what Aldous Huxley warned about in Brave New World seems to also have come true, where we have a technologically advanced society where people are subdued by drugs and, and distracted by endless stimulation. And uh, that's, uh, we've got a cross between George Orwell's 1984 and Aldous Huxley's uh, Brave New World in a Modern World, and even worse. It's as, as though the Soviet policies have moved over to the West. You now get more freedom in what used to be Eastern Europe, what used to be behind the Iron Curtain, than you now get in much of Western Europe. And it's as a result of infiltration of people like Marxists and people who will call upon a KGB leader to give advice on how to run Homeland Security, just like now, how do we deal with a, a seasonal flu epidemic? Oh, we learned from the Communist Party of China and we follow their totalitarian lockdown guidelines. Who wrote this script? Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And I've got something to read uh, now that you'll be familiar with. I'm sure you will, as will uh, many people listening. But I want to preface it with this article dated Sunday, November the tw uh, Sunday, 24th of November 2002. So we're basically 
uh, only a few days short or a few weeks short of 20 years ago when this was written, Churchill voted Greatest Britain. Sir Winston Churchill has been named the greatest Briton of all time in a nationwide poll attracting more than a million votes. Now, there's a top ten here that I'll get into afterwards that I think you'll find very interesting. Uh, But before we do, bear in mind that Winston Churchill here, greatest Briton of all time, according to this poll. So uh, he actually wrote an interesting article uh, in uh, February, sorry, on February the 8th of 1920 in the Illustrated Sunday Herald. And this is what he had to say. Some people like Jews and some do not, but no thoughtful man can doubt the fact that they are beyond all question the most formidable and the most remarkable race which has ever appeared in the world. And it may well be that this same astounding race may at the present time be in the action be in the actual process of producing another system of morals and philosophy as malevolent as Christianity was benevolent, which, if not arrested, would shatter irretrievably all that Christianity has rendered possible. From the days of Spartacus Weishaupt to those of Karl Marx and down to Trotsky, Russia, Bela Kuhn, Hungary, Rosa Luxemburg, Germany, and Emma Goldman, United States, this worldwide conspiracy for the overthrow of civilization and for the reconstitution of society on the basis of arrested development of envious malevolence and impossible equality has been steadily growing. It played a definitely recognisable part in the tragedy of the French Revolution. It has been the mainspring of every subversive movement during the 19th century, and now at last this band of extraordinary personalities from the underworld of the great cities of Europe and America have gripped the Russian people by the hair of their heads and have become practically the undisputed masters of that enormous empire. There is no need to exaggerate the part played in the creation of Bolshevism and in the actual bringing about of the Russian Revolution by these international and for the most part atheistic Jews. It is certainly a very great one. It probably outweighs all others. With the notable exception of Lenin, the majority of the leading figures are Jews. And of course now we know that Lenin was also Jewish. I believe it was the Jerusalem Post that ran an article on that. Uh, I'm going to go back. The reason I raise that is because uh, you mentioned that the West is basically under Marxist control now, and I completely agree with that. And I just want to look at the roots of uh, Marxism, the roots of communism, uh, as told to us by the greatest Britain of all time that the British public said was the greatest Britain of all time back in 2002 anyway. And I'm just going to run through the other people in the top ten. So Churchill was at number one, and he got 447,423 votes. Number t- He beat number two by more than 56,000 votes. The number two was Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Uh, and then number three is Princess Diana. Number four <laughs> is Charles Darwin. Number five... <laughs> <laughs> number five is William Shakespeare number six is Isaac Newton uh, number seven John Lennon oh. uh, she, she 
he pipped number eight, Elizabeth the first, and uh, mm. then we had uh, a couple of these together actually. Uh, Lord Nelson, I did, uh, your, well, it's really your <laughs> traditional Christian message because it's your work that I read out. I did uh, a couple of ones recently on Elizabeth I and last Sunday's was on Lord Nelson. Uh, number 10 is Oliver Cromwell. So that was the top 10. So I just thought, uh, any comments you'd like to make on anything I've said, Peter? Well, I wouldn't have voted uh, Winston Churchill as the greatest Britain of all time. First of all, he's half American anyway. Uh, but aside from that... Um, he left Britain weaker politically, spiritually, economically, uh, militarily, in every way um, after he left office. He entered public office around 1910 and uh, from First Lord's Admiralty onwards. Um, when he came to power, Britain was at the apex of power. It was the greatest power in the world in any, every way. By the time he left, Britain was really something of a second and third rate country. Uh, largely as a result of his policies that he had brought about in the ruinous wars that he had involved Britain in. And he was the most enthusiastic uh, cabinet member in the First World War uh, cabinet that, that urged Britain to get involved in the First World War uh, when it didn't have to. And also the second, he, he connived against the wishes of everyone from the Prime Minister down in both the First and Second World War cabinet. He's the only uh, British political leader to be involved in both the First and Second World War and ruinous wars they were. And, um, well, we've spoken in a previous um, uh, about his very questionable backgrounds when he claimed uh, in his own writings to have been part of massacring men, women, and children in uh, Afghan war and a village and going and killing them all. So he wasn't just a uh, journalist observing. And he s wrote in full support of the hideous policies of of Milner and Kitchener, of the uh, concentration camp scorched earth campaigns against the Boer women and children, uh, war crimes in the Anglo-Boer War. And uh, what he did, uh, in, <laughs> the Indians and so on would not be thrilled with him either, because of what he did to advance a deliberate policy of famine to kill millions of people in India during the wartime and so on. So he, he was um, a highly questionable person, to put it nicely. Nevertheless, a stop clock can be right twice a day. And while I don't like Churchill's policies, his writings are often great, his jokes and quotes are often brilliant, and um, his insights sometimes were amazing. Uh, his policies were just universally shockingly bad. Uh, I'm surprised Margaret Thatcher wasn't in the list, and um, I would have thought uh, that we should have had uh, in that list as well um, King Alfred the Great, uh, as if you're putting some of the greatest Britons of all time, what he did in terms of... Uh, pioneering education, the Royal Navy, uh, the common law of England, so many great things. So, yes, I think that's a shocking list to include people like Darwin and John Lennon. What on earth did they contribute to Britain uh, in terms of anything good that is? And I can't think of one good thing to say about them. But his quote, um, noting that Marxism, or to use our Lord Jesus' terms, the synagogue of Satan, you know, those who are not the true people of God, but those who are a synagogue of Satan, who have the devil as their father, the father of lies, those who, who hate the people of God, who hate Christ, um, those who are blasphemers and who have worked for revolution. They are, without a doubt, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn pointed out, uh, Marxism uh, is unprecedented in its malevolence, in its hatred, in its malicious, organized, militant atheism, and um, uh, certainly we need to recognize that the greatest threat to civilization all of history has come from Marxism. And they've killed more Christians than all other uh, 
causes combined over 20 centuries. And considering Marxism has only been a reality in the last century, uh, that's absolutely extraordinary. So, yes, um, while it may not have used Winston Churchill as an authority, his quote is valid on this point, and uh, I would take Alexander Solzhenitsyn as a better authority because his life uh, is more exemplary. Back to Andrew. Thank you, Peter, and I'm sure that there was another um, BBC poll, because I'm trying to think back to um, that 1999 year when we you know, went into the new millennium, millennium at the end of the year and there was all these, uh, their greatest song, and, and the greatest song I remember was Imagine, but I can't find by John Lennon. <laughs> Um, which is, of course, when you actually look at the lyrics, uh, you know, imagine there's no heaven. It's a very sort of communist song. When, when, when you oh, look yes. At it. Um, but um, it also, I've, uh, what has come up here, though, is um, uh, from MediaMass.net. This uh, says, imagine voted best song of all time. And uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is pathetic. I would recommend that anyone who's interested uh, in that uh, should look for Babylon B's song. Imagine all the people living in the gulag, and uh, it's it's a wonderful skit um, exposing the real message of Imagine. And uh, you know, Babylon B, imagine all the people living in the gulag, and uh, it's it's absolutely brilliant parody and, and far more edifying uh, than that ghastly bit of Marxist propaganda uh, by uh, John Lennon, uh, who, by the way, is a pervert. Well, it says, uh, funnily enough, in the Wikipedia page on the song itself, um, the best-selling single of his solo career, the lyrics encourage listeners to imagine a world of peace without materialism, without borders separating nations, and without religion. One has to wonder if this was uh, commissioned by the World Economic Forum or someone similar. Mm-hmm. No, I'm sure. So, but anyway, that that's that's a very good example of what our people look for. Nicely packaged, sounds nice, but when you analyse the words, absolutely anti-Christ. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And before we go, uh, I'd like you to just uh, remind the audience to bookmark in their diaries Sunday 13th of November. That's not this Sunday, folks. It's next Sunday. But we're going to mention this each week so that you uh, can can make your own plans to follow the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, which uh, Peter is involved with. Uh, on the Sunday 13th of November and there's going to be events going on throughout the day we don't have them all as yet because you know it's still a couple of weeks away just under so if, um, just put it in your diaries and then you'll be able to follow things live on the internet but Peter what can you tell us about this before we go yes International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted has been going for over 30 years it's inspired by the seven-year Jericho prayer march, prayer focus, which brought down the Iron Curtain, the Berlin Wall, which uh, in the seven years preceding it. And so since the coming down the Berlin Wall and Iron Curtain, we've been part of an initiative with other missions to persecute church, such as Voice the Martyrs, Open Doors and others, uh, to try and mobilize churches to set aside the second Sunday of November to remember the persecuted church, just like 11th of November's a remembrance of people who've died in the wars before, we should be remembering those who are right now suffering persecution. Officially, over 400 million Christians live under 66 governments of the world that persecute, not just severely restrict, but persecute Christians. 
And so we're talking about about 400 million Christians in 66 countries live under a situation where the Bible is effectively forbidden and where religious freedom is curtailed and where people suffer right up to being murdered uh, for their faith, such as in North Korea and Saudi Arabia and, and many other countries like that. So uh, we've got a website, www.idop-africa, IDOP, short for International Day of Prayer, hyphen Africa. Uh, you can go onto the idop-africa website or a Facebook page as well, and you'll find videos, PowerPoints, articles, pictures, um, resources uh, in order to inform and inspire people to speak up for the persecuted church, uh, to do what we can to help and, and provide for them. We've got different campaigns like Boxes with Love to Prisoners and Pensioners in Zimbabwe. Uh, we've got uh, a whole range of campaigns and prayer posters for different countries like uh, the Noob Mountains of Sudan and Zimbabwe where Christians are suffering for their faith now. So 13th of November, and it's International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted. Try and mobilize your church or prayer group to observe this. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. There will be a link in the post for this show, uh, and I'll just give you the address again. It's uh, idop-africa, idop-africa.org. So if you're listening, just write that one down, idop hyphenafrica.org so peter before we go can you please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you thank you our website is www.frontlinemissionsa.org frontline mission sa short for south africa frontline mission sa.org and my personal email is peter at frontline.org.za peter at frontline.org.za thank you so much andrew thank you so much peter and thank you all for listening to today's show entitled The Real Story of How Nations Rise and Fall. Peter will be back with you again next week. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, have a wonderful day and bye for now. <laughs>